Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Dr. Jocelyn Amani, the National Director for the Black History and Culture Program at the Trust for Public Land. Dr. Amani will discuss the importance in creating shared spaces that are more relevant and accessible to all populations. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be chatting with Dr. Jocelyn Imani of the Trust for Public Land, where she serves as the National Director for Black History and Culture. Um, and we're going to be talking about what that means and how the Trust for Public Land is engaging in this work. Um, but Jocelyn, tell us a little bit about your path into this kind of work. Um how does someone end up running this program? Are you the first person to run the program? What was your spark moment? How did you get involved in history? Why does it matter to you? Tell us your story. <laughs> That's so many good questions. Okay, so I am the first, um, but I shan't be the last. Um, I started this work as a freshman in college. I came to college to be a business major, five-year MBA, and then I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to have three degrees by the time I'm 25. I know that because that was the lie. And then um, somewhere, either freshman orientation week or sometime after, this woman did a presentation on this Jubilee Sanders. Now, I'm a, I'm a Fisk University freshman at the time. My mother is a Fisk alum and a Fisk Jubilee singer. So I grew up with the rich heritage of the Jubilee singers, the Jubilee songs with my lullabies. I felt like I knew this story forward and backward. And the woman did this presentation and blew my mind. Like, it was so many textures and angles of the story that I had never heard before. And I remember leaving, I can't like close my eyes and see it. I was leaving the cafeteria, walking down the yard, and I had a very clear thought that I don't think was mine. That was change your major to history, period. And so I did. I changed my major to history. And I called my mom and I was like, Mom, I'm so excited. I'm glad to change my major to history. And she said, I don't know what you're going to do with that, but I'm right. <laughs> and, and that began my career in the field. I now know that those campus tours I was giving as a student ambassador was my first experience with frontline interpretation. I now know that the oral history project that I did as a college student was an entree into that element of the field. I, and then I did so many things. I, so I finished my bachelor's at this, got a PhD in history at Howard. So grateful that I came up on the field of public history. I came this close to leaving history because I thought it was boring. Uh, and I almost went to like applied anthropology and I love my anthropologist, but I'm glad I stuck with public history. I started working at the park service, Ranger Jocelyn led to doing my postdoc at Smithsonian. I did, I was part of the inaugural staff with the African American Museum, Nationalism, African American History and Culture. Um, and then let's see what else. And then I 
freelance. I had a consulting firm and freelanced in D.C. for a bit and did all types of public history. Anybody who's paying me a good check. And uh, and then I found this job. I had gone back to the park service and I found this job on LinkedIn. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is all of the things that I do. It's outside. It's history. It's memory. Oh, it's all these things. I can do this. And I applied. And I got it. And and I have to ask you, the woman who gave the lecture, does she know that she's re- she's responsible for all this? Good, yes, good her work. Yes, Dr. Crystal DeGregory, and she knows this. Uh, she often jokes. And she says, "Don't tell your mom. Don't have your mama blaming me for this." But it's a joke. She she's a good a good woman who's practicing in the field as well. Um, where is she now? I think she's down at Bethune Cookman, and she's done. Um, amazing, amazing job in her career, Dr. Crystal DeGregory. It's so interesting. You know, we've done, you're probably 200 and I don't know exactly which number this will be, 280th, 285th episode or something like that. You know, we're, we're closing in on 300. And I feel like we, at some point we need to like look back at all of them and be like, what got people into all these things? And I feel like there's, you talk about anthropology, there's like sort of like these these cultural, you know, what do they call them in anthropology? Cult, uh, sort of things that, that cross all cultures. And there's things that cross all people in preservation and history. And almost invariably, whether it's, an, it's a parent or it's a, you know, a great professor, or there's just there's somebody who sparks that love or kind of like sets something off. Um, yeah. And I think that that's that's important for all of us in this field to remember, because we can be that person to somebody else at some absolutely, point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when I look back, I actually did my first oral interview at the age of nine. And like as I, I had my great grandfather, who was exactly 80 years older than me, I interviewed with him. I just I heard all these jobs he had done. And he just was a fascinating man. And now that I understand more about his life and and who she was, he's from the early 20th century that you can't talk to that guy anymore. It doesn't exist. And I did when I was a kid because I had my great-grandfather. And now that I look at my life and all of these places where I've been, like all these pieces were adding up to it. But in terms of thinking about it as a major, a discipline, a career path to go into, that's Mark Batter. And it's honestly, uh, you know, Crystal was the first spark, but she certainly wasn't the last. And there have been so many, so many, I start making names, I might get in trouble because I might forget somebody. There have been so many people along this journey. Um, I, I have to also mention Dr. Elizabeth Clark Lewis because if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would know what public history was, like as a field. I, I had a professor in undergrad who did public history, but it wasn't a program. And Dr. Clark Lewis created and maintained the public history program at Howard. And I, I didn't know that this this frustration, this tension I had with academic history, that I could merge the worlds of like the practice of history with the application of making it relevant to public audiences. And Clark Lewis, man, she she made sure that we got a really diverse and extensive introduction to the field in that in that program. And I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful. So for people listening, 
you know, we have listeners all across the country, all across the world for that matter, who aren't familiar with Trust for Public Land. Before we get into what you're doing there, what is the Trust for Public Land? What's the what's the bumper sticker version of explaining what it is uh, the TPL does? We connect people to the outdoors. That's real clear and simple. We are 50 year old. We're celebrating our 50 years, 50th year this year. Nonprofit that is dedicated to decreasing the park equity gap. Right now, there are 100 million Americans that don't have access to a park within a 10 minute walk of their home, including 28 million children. We have to change that. We understand the health benefits and the climate benefits to increase uh, green space. We also understand that there's cultural benefits to access to green space. So we do parks, lands, trails, schoolyards, committed to impacting health, equity, and climate in communities across the country. So someone listening to that would say, great, they do parks, they do land, they, you know, land preservation, conservation, park building, like it. What is the African-American history? Pro- Why? Wait. Wait, I'm 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 lost here. Now I I can I can make the connection here, but what is the Black History and Culture Program? What is the connection yeah. there? Because I think even internally, you probably could argue, and I'm curious what you think about this. That TPL didn't think of themselves for a long time as a culture and history organization or one that impacted no. that work. But in fact, no, I think that's accurate. So the Black History and Culture Initiative emerged out of conversations between the CEO, Ms. Diane Regas. And what is now the chair of the Black History and Culture Advisory Council, Mr. Keith Weaver, uh, who's the, he's, Keith sits on our national board. Keith and Diane were having this conversation. And when you look at the history of TPL, there have been Black History and Culture projects here and there, right? Uh, so Martin Luther King National Historical Park, great site in Atlanta. TPL, over the course of 30 years, at least 30 years, has added parcels of land to that park. When you go to that park, it's a historical park, not a historical site, because you're walking through the world that Dr. King walked through as a child. Well, who bought that land? TPL. You you know? Um, Similarly with Colonel Charles Young in Ohio, or um, Megar Murley Evers is a little different, but we help with Megar Murley Evers, and there's these sites, Nicodemus in in, Kansas. Nicodemus. And and I guess you could also argue that, I mean, it's really hard when you start thinking about it to divorce if black history from any parcel of land. Right. It's like it's like somehow it's like the, the artificial boundary in Southern cooking where you're like, well, that's that's black food. And then this is Southern food. And it's like, no, 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 no. Southern food is Southern food. Right. Like it. And so black history is on every parcel of land that you've touched in this country in one way or the other. It's just a matter of are you looking for it? If you're doing battlefield preservation outside of Atlanta, okay, maybe you're not thinking of that as black history, but boy, that certainly impacted black history in a big way, right? So And this that right there, I'll just briefly interject because that in terms of the internal conversation is exactly been part of the internal conversation that we're having. Because when I came on, I inherited a map that was a lot of our history work. But I was like, this is black history and culture. So when we think about our schoolyards projects or our parks projects, are they in a traditionally black neighborhood like Harlem? That is black history and culture too. Is it in, you know, an area where it's not just about where black people are, but also like where black folks have created legacy 
self-determination has really been the driving principle that guides my work and that guides how I'm leading TPL to think about our work. It's like our Black people making space, telling stories for themselves. And if so, we'll help with the land deals, we'll help transform the landscape um, and do what's necessary. The only thing we don't do, we're not deep preservationists. So if it's a little bit of work to a structure, we do that. But if it's a lot of work, we turn that over to our preservation friends so we don't mess anything up. So obviously there's like a thousand different ways in which you could do this work, which is good and bad, right? Because it's like, okay, we can do everything, but you can't do everything. And so what is the program? What is in, in, in sort of what are the concrete ways in which the program is trying to impact the work of, of TPL and, and the way people think about land in this country? Like, what is it that you're actually doing as a, as a, as a program? Yeah, that's great. Um, so one of my, so self-determination has been a driving thought. As, as I'm looking at the landscape, there are a lot of sites that tell Black stories. There are not a lot of sites that tell Black stories from Black perspectives. There are plenty of sites that like center the white supremacist domestic terrorism that Black folks are subjected to. And then like at the end, you get a little bit of how they survived, but not like foregrounding Black folks telling the stories for themselves. So as I'm looking at sites to preserve, that's number one. I'm also looking at geography. We have a lot of sites east of the Mississippi, Mm -hmm. but there's a whole rich Black history west of the Mississippi. So I'm looking at places like Roslyn, Washington, which has a rich Black history, or looking in Albuquerque a little bit. This places that are west. So I should say, in terms of site, Everybody is working in all of this field offices of TPL looking at Black history, but I'm specifically, uh, you know, I've challenged my colleagues like, to think about geography, think about self-determination, even if it's a local story, is it a local story with national significance? And then the other piece of TPL that makes it a bit different is we don't own the sites. So we're also thinking about ongoing stewardship. How do we identify partners that have the, um, the propensity for ongoing stewardship? Or how do we identify the partners who have the energy and the effort, but we stand them up in a way, provide whatever additional support to uh, lead to ongoing stewardship? So there's the sites. There's a research component, which I'm really excited about. To my knowledge, there hasn't been extensive research on, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll just call it a health check of these black sites that exist. There's a, so there's a conversation about identifying and creating new sites, but there's also a conversation about the health of the ones that exist. <clears throat> so I'm looking at both uh, sites with African-American heritage and enabling legislation written into it in the park service, as well as black sites in the National Register. And then uh, the sites, the research, I think that's it for where we are right now. There's some future you know, we're, we're doing a lot to just be more visible so that folks can invite us in. We don't know everything. There's a lot of coalition building, partnerships, supporting existing entities like the Association of African American Museums or the Association for the Study of African American Life and History so that we tap into those national networks. Yeah, we're, we're, we got a lot of moving pieces going on, but it's good. So it's a huge project, and I, I mean, it dovetails again. You mentioned too the National Register. I think at one point you kind of flagged it. it. It dovetails with the fact that a lot of these sites either 
aren't recognized on the National Register for their association with African-American history or it's like a like a footnote or a passing reference. Is there an effort to correct the record as well? Is that part of the process or is that sort of a future phase? It's a future phase because first, you know, we got the list. Number one, the National Register, we don't we don't exactly know every black site that's on the register because there's some structural challenges with how things are coded. But the ones we know, which is a I have a list of just under three thousand African American sites on the register. Then the next phase is to research them. What's the so I have a brilliant um, a brilliant colleague that I've brought on um, just to do this project to figure out what's the status of them, how they have capital investment, what's the stories that they tell, and and the one question that I'm really excited about is how did these sites get on the National Register? Because in analyzing that data. Will we be able to see some vectors, some people that are, some patterns? What patterns can we figure out? So once we get through this phase of research, which probably through the end of the year, um, to do that initial analysis of the the Black sites in the National Register, then the next piece will be like, okay, so what patterns do we see emerging in this analysis to figure out, okay, in the state of North Carolina, are there these three folks that are always writing these nominations? How do we get them more resources and support? Or, you know, these are the questions. We have more questions than answers right now, but we're, I'm excited about what we find. Well, yeah, and, it, and I mean, at least now someone's asking the questions. That's the, right, I mean, and you're not going to get any answers if you don't ask questions. Um, so let's take a quick pause, come back, talk about maybe some specific projects you're working on, where the work is headed, and how people can get engaged. Um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work, and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Jocelyn Imani um, with the Trust for Public Land, where she serves as the National Director for the Black History and Culture Program. Um, we've been talking all about what that means, the, her path to preservation and history and, and public history, um, the work that they're doing and the questions that they're asking. Um you know, it'd be fun to talk about maybe a specific project. We've kind of talked in generalities uh, about this. And I know this past April, um, you hosted a celebration of all of this kind of work at the nearest green distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that? Are people, what, what's the story there and, and, and how's TPL connected? It was, yes, I would love to talk about that because it was amazing. Um, so Keith Weaver, who I mentioned, is the advisory board chair for the Black History and Culture Advisory Board. He also is co-owner uh, of Uncle Nearest Brand, Nearest Green Distillery. Um, 
And so he was such a gracious host to invite us to the distillery to launch the program formally. And man, what a day it was. We helped unveil the marker for the Dancall Farm. Dancall Farm is a place where uh, Near Screen and Jack Daniel met. Um, one of the common misconceptions that I have to just make note of is that Jack Daniel did not own Near Screen. Jack Daniel was like a boy who was working for, they were both working for a preacher named Dan Call. And so, you know, I will spare you all the details. Please look it up. It's an amazing story. But we unveiled that marker, which is a part of Tennessee Historical Commission's formal marker program. And then we had a conversation, which is actually on TPL's website. If you weren't able to join us in person, you can see the whole conversation between Keith Weaver and myself and um, another advisory board member, Mickey Woodard, about what this work is and how we're doing it and why we're going about doing it. And it was a really good time. And, and it, I have to say, part of my practice is my faith in that I, I just believe that I'm doing this for more than me. And that moment was one of those moments that felt like everything was aligned. Because even Keith is in Shelbyville, which is just like an hour south of Nashville. I'm a Nashville native based in Nashville. We didn't know that we were an hour apart from each other when we started this work, but it just worked out beautifully. What a cool story. And one that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. I mean, I, I had heard about it because of, uh, you know, some folks that I know who were at it and then I sort of started looking it up and I was like, I didn't know any of Now I didn't know the whole story of Jack Daniels and all of this, but I love that this luminary of a brand, he learned how to brew or not brew, I guess, distill from yes. uncle nearest. Yeah. It's, it's the thing. And I'm really just as a native to the scene, this is the thing that makes me feel proud is that the, the thing that distinguishes Tennessee whiskey from Kentucky bourbon is a distilling process, what's called the Lincoln County process. Lincoln County is where the Dan Call Farm is. And it is a method of purifying your uh, liquor with charcoal. That technique actually traces back to West Africa. Hmm. So it would have been something that Near Spring learned from folks who survived the Middle Passage and passed it down to him. And then he taught Jack Daniels. And Jack Daniel called Near Screen the best distiller he ever met. So that's just one example of the types of stories. We talk about self-determination as a driving force. Yes, Near Screen was enslaved, but he was so much more than the condition that right. he was subject to. And he was brilliant. And it's an honor and a privilege to like lift his name up every time they can. And I'm trying to find more and more stories just like that, you know? I know. And now it's a good reason for me to go out and buy some uncle nearest for the weekend. Absolutely. I mean, it's historical research. It's only appropriate. 1884, 1856. And then you've got it. If you got it, if you can't get to Shelbyville, because the only place you can buy the master blend is at the distillery. And it is It's amazing. Fascinating. And I also love there's, there's something really great in this story that eventually we'll have to talk about, which is that they were both working for a preacher. We got to know. His, yes. Yes. Who this in the church on the same ground? Of course he, of course they were. There's just something so American about that that is sort of painful. Um, so you know, one thing I'm curious about is there are so many. You know, I was at this um dedication yesterday here in Maryland of a new national heritage area, and we had the Piscataway people there and Governor Moore 
talking about sort of the power of history and that we have nothing to be scared of if we know and know what our history is because we you know we stand on the shoulders of of, of, our, of our ancestors and there are so many different stories. So here in Southern Maryland, this is an example. Um, you know, there are the stories of the indigenous people. There's the stories of the enslaved. There's the stories of the white indentured servants and all these different stories that come together to kind of create this blend of a place like so many places in the country. Is TPL kind of looking like obviously black history is such an important and critical component to it, but is then there the indigenous piece is there yeah. the lgbtq piece and is that like a an empire that you will then command of all of these different stories on the landscape i i uh i sometimes joke i'm like tito jackson on the base i i hit my lane you know just stay in my little pocket no no we are hiring uh, a national tribal and indigenous lands director hmm. to be somebody who would direct that tribal work. My colleague, Danielle Dank, who's our national school yards director, has been doing that. Like, there's a fantastic partnership with Bureau of Indian Education to remake tribal schoolyards, but there's work beyond schoolyards that needs its own director. But then as far as other identities, we're, we're going to hold on Black history and culture and tribal for there. But I know for me, when I'm thinking about Black history and culture, I'm specifically thinking about it in a very intersectional way. Right. So, like, Stonewall is a Black history and culture story, for sure, because sure, Marsha P. Johnson, you know? Um, and as I'm looking at additional stories to tell and preserve, I'm looking at queer icons, looking at, you know, I, I really want to flip our national understanding of Blackness on its head. If, if that, that's, a, that's my big picture goal. It's going to take a few years, but I would love to collect sites that really disrupt our popular narratives. And because we've been queer, we've been, the country's been Black, we've been Indigenous, all of these things that folks are looking at as like new interest in identity history. These folks have always existed. Their histories have been suppressed. So it is my honor and my privilege to give voice to some of those ancestors. Because when I tell my students, like, Folk, our ancestors want to be black. They want their names to be spoken. They want their stories to be told. So it's just my job to dig it up and, and give it space to, to tell itself, you know? That's such a wonderful way of kind of framing that and kind of thinking about all these different ways of looking at the landscape and all the different histories there. And I also love the optimism that you... I forget exactly how you said it. You're going to turn the I, the understanding of blackness on its head. And then like you said, it might take a few years. So I'm... <laughs> I'm glad that you gave yourself at least 24 months, but, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if I take the rest of my life, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's, and, and I guess if people are interested in getting engaged in this work, someone's listening and like, this is awesome. Either they want to be supportive or they have a story or a place that should be, they think should be acquired or protected and they need a partner how do they engage with the work? You know, I know a lot of your work is kind of looking internally at TPL and then thinking about externally how TPL presents itself and the stories it's going to tell and how it interprets them. But if someone's listening and wants to get engaged, you know, we can put a link in the show notes and everything like that. So someone can yeah. click on something. But what are the ways that you're kind of engaging the public in this? Oh, so I'm traveling a lot. A lot of folks are finding me on LinkedIn. I will say that we have, if somebody wants to um, 
send a message on our contact us page. I do get those. Like that's not a, a general like go see my people. No, I really do get them. If you if you send a, a message on tpl.org under contact us, I do get them. Um and yeah, I think that's the best way to get in touch with me is is there. And I'm on LinkedIn, but you know, depending on my travel schedule, I may not be as responsive. But if you send a message on tpl.org under the contact us part, I will get it. And people obviously can be supportive of TPL. They can make a gift and I I suppose they can direct it to this program if they're interested. Yes, they absolutely can. If you go on tpl.org and you type in Black History and Culture in the shirt bar, I'm doing it now to make sure I'm telling the truth. It types up, it shows up uh, immediately where we are. It shows up the page that is the landing page, all the Black History and Culture stuff. You can make a direct gift. I will make sure that you get the exact link yep. um, so that people don't have to take these steps. But everything, if you want to learn more, you type in Black History Culture, everything that we have done, all the stories, all the things show up so you can learn more there for sure. And that's obviously the best place to catch up and see what the projects are too and the updates exactly. and all that kind of stuff. And I was going to say, like, what are you working on right now? You're going to hang up with us pour yourself a glass of uncle nearest and then what are you what are you working on now let's see so there's so there's work that is tpo work like our staff is doing it and then some of the work through the initiative is just supporting our external partners so what i'm working on right now we're getting ready for the mega movie everest national historic site reopening with the park service it's in we're recording this at the end of May in just a couple of weeks, at the beginning of June, June 8th. Well, the site will reopen to the public, and there's a whole thing there, and I'm getting ready for that. Um, let's see, there's a, a Masonic Hall. We've added another parcel to Martin's King National Historical Park, the Prince Hall Masonic Lodge, which was the home of WERD radio station, as well as the home of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference offices. We've added that, so we have some pieces to do for that. Uh, I'm really excited about a, a, a gift we made in support of Compton Community Garden, which is a community garden in Los Angeles that was under threat being sold to developers. Um, and I'm so grateful that we helped to save it and to keep it as a community garden in an area where this work is much needed. So that's what's coming to mind right now. But I'm also looking at, I'll be in Seattle in Roslyn, soon looking at some potential projects there i'm traveling a lot like a crazy person but it's it's i mean i get tired sometimes but i'm so grateful to do this work and i just you know i take a nap and get back to it you well, know it comes across and it's exciting to talk with you we ask everyone it normally makes people skin crawl particularly the people we uh in you know in um interview what is your favorite historic place or site oh. and it, it might be maybe it's what your current historic place or site yeah. is, or with some people it's what's the last one that you went to that you loved historic site not a museum well it could be a mu- i mean it could be a museum because i really love two mississippi museums in jackson mississippi i think okay which ones are uh, they what'd you say which which of the museums Two Mississippi museums. It's okay. like they merged the state museum and the civil rights museum to make you two Mississippi museums. And I think they have this amazing um, classroom installation that really brings you into a deeper understanding of what uh, 
education in the segregation era was like, but I think it's real sharp. I liked that a lot. It's not my favorite, but it's what comes to mind. It's something because I'm, I'm getting ready to go back to Jackson. I'm like, oh, I want to see that again. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it's it's very difficult to mention a favorite because that's that's hard. <laughs> I also loved Nicodemus. I am going front. Everybody should try to get to Western Kansas. The prairie was not kind to my allergies. But to it was it was kind of a trick for me to be in the middle of what felt like nowhere and feel at home. That was amazing to me as well. I, but I'm I'm just curious about the whole country, really. Well, we'll have to have you have to have you back again soon and talk about where the latest place you've been and the, and the yeah. coolest place from your travels. It's um fun to talk with you, inspiring to hear about the the work. Um, and I know everybody out there listening is excited to see what you guys do next. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you for all that you do. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.